You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. I encourage you to uh, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is found in your New Testament. You can find it with the table of contents, or if you're using a Bible app, you can just go in there and find Hebrews and go to chapter 9, and that's where we're going to be this morning. One of the things we like to do here at Whitefields is we like to study through books of the Bible. So for the last several weeks and months, actually, we've been uh, we've taken a couple breaks, but we have been studying through the letter to the Hebrews, and we look at a section every uh, Sunday, and we move our way through the entire letter, and we find that that's one of the best ways that we can study the Bible, because that way we hear the entire message in its full context of what God intended to speak to us through every given section. So in Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be looking at the first half this morning. Hebrews is one of the greatest books in the whole Bible. What it does, what it's unique about it, what's special about it is that it ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament and shows you how the entire Bible actually tells one big story, one grand story, and it's a story of Jesus and how he comes into this world to redeem us and be the Savior that we need. The Old Testament points to Jesus, and the New Testament tells us what it means for us now that Jesus has come. So again, we've been studying through this for several weeks now, and today we, we're really coming in last week, this week, next week, we're coming to what is really the heart of of the letter to the Hebrews. So I believe that God has some things to speak to us this morning. So if you'd please read with me, we're going to begin by reading our text, which comes from Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll read some of these verses. Here's what it says. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section to perform their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this sacrifice that you made for us. And we, we pray that as we study your word today, Lord, you'd impress upon us the importance of this for us. And Lord, we, we pray that you would truly help us to understand what it means that in Christ we can have a clean conscience. Lord, I pray that today as we study your word, you would speak to us, speak into the things of our lives. Lord, you know what they are for each of us. And Lord, we ask that you would do a transforming work in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So have you ever heard the phrase uh, that there is no rest for the wicked? So there's no rest for the wicked. This is a phrase that has been used in our uh, popular culture from everything from Little Orphan Annie comics to an Ozzy Osbourne album and all kinds of stuff in between. And what's interesting, though, is that this phrase, there's no rest for the wicked, that actually comes straight out of the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 48, and then again in Isaiah 57, here's what it says. It says, there is no peace or no rest says my God, for the wicked. In Isaiah 57, he says, they are like the raging sea tossed with waves. And what that's referring to, what that term, that phrase is referring to, is the idea of having a guilty conscience. And what it means is that when you have a guilty conscience, when your conscience is bothering you, you can never relax. You can never rest fully and deeply. Conscience is really an interesting thing. Uh, the word conscience, for example, is, is used in the book of Hebrews, more than any other portion of the Bible. And the text which we just read, it mentioned the conscience twice. In verse 14, it says that one of the problems that all of us have is that we don't have peace in our conscience. In the next chapter, in chapter 10, it talks about the conscience again, and it says that our big problem, one of our big problems is we have a guilty conscience. So we have to ask the question, what is a conscience? Your conscience is that inner voice it's that inner sense of right and wrong. To have a guilty conscience means that you know that you've done something wrong and that you're, there's something not right and you feel bad about it. One person put it this way, he said, your conscience is that bad feeling you have even when everything else around you is good. Another person put it this way, a guilty conscience is the sense that you could not survive close examination. If people really knew everything you've done, if they really knew everything that goes on in your mind and in your heart, if they knew what you're really like, then they would reject you. It's this deep sense that you're not fit, that there's something wrong with you. You're not fit for the presence of others. You're not fit for examination. And therefore, you have to hide and, and you can't be fully transparent. You can't let people see you for who you really are. And that's why many of us, we're afraid of letting people get too close to us, right? Because if they get too close and they might see us for who we really are, they might discover certain things about us that we don't want them to see. And so we keep people at arm's length distance and we put on personas so that we can make people think that we are a certain way. Way, whether that's true or not. Because here's the thing, we, we all, this is a universal problem we all have. We have this conscience that bothers us. When you have a guilty conscience, the result of that is shame. So guilt has to do with what you've done, but shame is a whole new level. Shame has to do with who you are. Right? So, and that, that's the essence of having a guilty conscience. It's this sense of shame over who you are and this nagging sense that you're not okay, that there's something wrong with who you are and what you've done. And people try to deal with this problem of their conscience in a lot of different ways. One of the ways is through religion, right? So through religion, people try to deal with their conscience. Another way that people try to get peace in their conscience is by convincing themselves that their conscience is actually the problem, that they shouldn't actually feel bad about anything, that the conscience, the very fact that they feel bad, that's the problem, and they just need to kind of get over it. And uh, maybe they would say, guilt is a negative feeling. And in a modern world like we live in, everyone determines for themselves what the standards are of right and wrong. And so you shouldn't ever let anybody impose their guilt upon you. You shouldn't let anybody ever make you feel guilty. 
Some people might say, well, you know, guilt is just a hangover from a religious past, and, and we all just need to move on and get over it. And instead, you should tell yourself, you know, you're just perfect the way that you are, and everything that's wrong in the world and everything that's wrong with you is somebody else's fault. And that can help, you make, help make you feel better. Uh, another way that people try to get peace in their conscience is by doing good things. So, for example, helping others or volunteering, uh, nonprofits, giving financially to good causes. Those are all good things. But one of the ways that people try to appease their consciences uh, so that their conscience doesn't bother them is so that when their conscience does bother them, they, they've done all these things, so now they can point to those things and say, okay, well, look at the good things I've done. Look, I might not be perfect, but I've done a lot of good things, right? Look at all the good I've done in the world, that's got to count for something, right? Now, hopefully, I can sleep well at night. But what the Bible tells us, and, and actually what you already know, if you've ever tried to do any of those things, what the Bible says and what we all innately know is that none of those things can actually fix the problem that we have in our conscience. As human beings, we cannot seem to shake this sense of shame and guilt. Our consciences still bother us. So what can we do about it? Well, here in our text today, the Bible gives us what it says is the only true solution to getting a clean conscience and finally getting that deep sense of inner rest that comes as a result. So the title of today's message is How to Have a Clear Conscience. And there are three things that we're going to see in this text in regard to this. So first of all, we, we begin the, the section with a virtual tour of heaven on earth, a virtual tour of heaven on earth. Then we want to talk about the wall of separation. And thirdly, I want to talk to you about how to sleep well at night. A virtual tour of heaven on earth. So this chapter begins by giving us a virtual tour. You know, if you've ever been on a realtor's website or if you've ever sold a house or bought a house, you know what I'm talking about, these virtual tours where they kind of give you a walkthrough of a structure. And the walkthrough they're giving us is of an ancient Jewish religious structure called the tabernacle. So what was the tabernacle? Well, it says here in verse 1, it actually tells us the tabernacle was, quote, an earthly place of holiness. So it was a place of worship for the ancient uh, Jewish people. So the tabernacle was a tent, and this tent functioned as the central place of worship for the nation of Israel. Now, later on, the tabernacle was replaced with the temple. So maybe you sometimes wonder, okay, so how does this all work? There's a tabernacle, there's a temple. How does this all fit together? Here's the deal. First, there was a tabernacle, which was a tent, and that was later replaced with a temple, brick and mortar, during the time of King Solomon. And, but here's the thing. For 500 years, they used this tent. Before the temple was built, for 500 years, they used this tent as their central place of worship for the nation, and it was called the tabernacle. And the reason it was a tent at first was because, in the beginning, the people of Israel were a nomadic people. So it says in verse 2, originally it says, a tent was prepared. Now, if you want to get the background on this, check out Exodus chapters 25 through 31, where you can read about the preparation of this tent for worship. So God, here's, here's kind of the background. God had set up this tent in this way. He had brought the people out of slavery in Egypt the people of Israel, and he had set them free, and he had brought them over the Red Sea. And now they had entered into a covenant with God, and they said, we will be your people, and you will be our God. And so God told them, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a special tent. Now, all the people were living in tents at this time. Remember that. And God told them, now I want you to build another tent. That's going to be my tent. And, and it represents the fact that I, as your God, I will dwell among you. 
This tent was to be placed at the very center of their camp. If you could make a diagram, which is described actually in the book of Numbers, how they were supposed to camp. The tent of meeting, is which is called the tabernacle, was at the very center of the camp, and all the people camped in a formation around it. And what that symbolized was that God said that he wanted to be at the very center of their lives. He did not want to be on the periphery of their lives. He wanted to be at the very heart, the very center of their families and their communities and each of their lives. And so I think that's worth reflecting on for each of us to ask ourselves that question. What is God's place in your life? What is God's place in your family's life, for example? Is he at the center or is it a peripheral thing? Is it, or is it center, is it at the heart of who you are and what you do? So let's, let's go on. What was this tent like? Well, let's go on a little tour, which uh, Hebrews chapter 9 leads us on. Here's what you should know before we go on the tour. We read this in our last chapter, but I want to remind, this, remind you of this. What we're told in chapter 8 is that the tabernacle was designed to be a copy and a shadow of the heavenly reality. And so it was a picture of heaven here on earth. It was kind of like, you can imagine, the embassy of a great king. It was an earthly model of God's heavenly throne room. So I want you to just kind of imagine yourself in the shoes of a person who's coming to the tabernacle to worship. The first thing you would encounter as you approach the tabernacle is a large fence. The first thing you would encounter is a large fence, and this would be made of curtains. The fence would be seven and a half feet high, so you wouldn't be able to see over it. To get into the courtyard, you would have to pass through a gate, which was made in these curtains. And this gate was pretty wide. It was 30 feet wide. And as you pass through this gate, you would enter a courtyard. And in the middle of that courtyard would be the tabernacle. But around the tabernacle was this courtyard, which was fenced off with this fence. Now, this is what the psalm writer is talking about when he says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. So in the courtyard, you would first come, the first thing you would encounter would be this very large bronze altar. Now this is the place where the sacrifices themselves were made. You, as a common person, you would never be allowed to enter into the tabernacle itself. No way. As much too sacred, much too holy for a common person like you or me to enter into. Unless you were a priest, the courtyard and that bronze altar, that's as far as you would ever be able to come. So this bronze altar was a big hollow box. You can kind of imagine it in a way, and not to be crass, it was, it was kind of like a giant barbecue, right? Because the top and the sides were grated, kind of like a big barbecue grill. And the reason for that is because they would make the fire inside this box for the offerings that they would burn on the altar. And then as it burnt, the ashes and, and the drippings and whatever came out of it, you know, it would all fall through the grate and into the center of that box. Now, going on past the bronze altar, the next thing you would encounter, moving towards the tabernacle through the courtyard, is a bronze basin. A bronze basin. And this bronze basin held water, and it was used for ceremonial washing. And so when the priests would make the sacrifices, it was a pretty messy job. I mean, you can imagine. There was a lot of blood. There was a lot of dirt ashes. I mean, it was messy. So before they could enter into the tabernacle, the priests would have to wash themselves so they could be clean in order to enter the sanctuary. So as you would continue moving towards uh, the tabernacle through the courtyard, the next thing you would encounter would be the entrance of the tabernacle itself. And the only people, again, who could enter the tabernacle were the priests. Now, the tabernacle itself was not particularly large. 
It was 45 feet long, and it was only 15 feet wide. And it was divided into two sections. The first section, as we read here in Hebrews 9, was called the holy place. And beyond the holy place was another section, which was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And both the holy place and the most holy place were blocked off and separated by very ornate curtains, or veils, they're sometimes called. Now these were very heavy, and they were very thick. They were woven to be the thickness of four of your fingers next to each other. So three and a half, four inches thick. That's how thick these curtains were. Very thick, very heavy. They were purple. The color was purple and blue. And they were embroidered with pictures of angels on them. So as you would pass through that first curtain and uh, the priest would enter this first room, which was called the holy place, on your right as you came in, there would be a table with bread on it. This is called the table of showbread, and it was a table that was covered in gold. And this showbread was a ceremonial bread, and what it symbolized was fellowship with God. But here's the thing, the only people who could enjoy this fellowship with God over this, this ceremonial meal were the priests, nobody else. Now, as you, uh, on your left, so on the right is that uh, the table of showbread. On your left, there would be a golden lampstand, which would be kind of like a candelabra. And beyond that, there would be an altar, an altar of incense. And that's where the priests would burn the incense. And the incense, what it symbolized was the prayers of the people rising up to God. And what that means is that God considers the prayers of his people to be a sweet-smelling aroma, something that pleases him and brings him joy. And that's the writer to the Hebrews, he alludes to that in, later on in another chapter where he says, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to our God, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So after that, you would run into the second curtain. The second curtain which separated the holy place, that first room, from the most holy place, the second room, which is called the Holy of Holies. And there inside that second room, the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, was located this golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. This is the thing that Indiana Jones was looking for. Now, the Ark of the Covenant represented the throne of God on earth. It was a box, so it literally inside of it is hollow, and inside of it, we read here, were kept the two stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, so the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. It also contained Aaron's staff, which had budded. You know, you can imagine having a walking stick and then seeing it come to life and bud. That was a miracle. And so they kept that in the box too. And then they also kept in there some of the manna, the manna, that bread from heaven that God had used to feed the children of Israel while they wandered in the wilderness. They had apparently stored some of that, and they kept that also in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, maybe you're wondering, where is this Ark of the Covenant today? Well, great question. If we knew that, then we wouldn't need to have Indiana Jones movies about it. But here's kind of a little history on it. In 70 AD, the Roman military sacked Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. In fact, they scraped it and they melted the gold out of the walls even. And, and something happened at that time to the Ark of the Covenant, but we don't know what it was. It's very hard to imagine somebody destroying something that significant or, or that, I mean, obviously something with that much significance. So the question is, was it stolen by the Romans and then traded around? Was it saved because the Jews knew that the Romans were coming, so they saved it and hid it somewhere? We don't know. 
But on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid. Now this lid is called the mercy seat. In verse 5, he mentions the mercy seat. What is that? That's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And on that lid, there were two golden angels, cherubim, and their wings met in the middle. Now between those two angels, on that lid, the mercy seat, that is where the most significant and important ceremonial act in all of Judaism took place. Once a year, on the day called Yom Kippur, maybe you've heard of that, it's still a holiday that they celebrate. On Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement, the high priest would pull back that four-inch thick curtain, and he would enter into that second section of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and he would be carrying a bowl full of blood full of the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed. And he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat, onto the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And he would actually do this two times. The first time he would do it to atone for his own sins. And secondly, he would do it again for the sins of the nation as a whole. And as they did this, God would forgive their sins. God would show them mercy at least for one more year. That was the thing, at least for one more year. Now this brings us to the second thing that Hebrews 9 wants us to see about the tabernacle and about the whole Jewish religious system, and that is the wall of separation. See, as much as the tabernacle symbolized the nearness of God to the people, that God wanted to dwell among the people, it also communicated something else, and it communicated very clearly, and that is this, that there is a wall of separation that exists between you and God. In fact, depending on who you are, there are probably several levels of walls that exist between you and God. So on the one hand, it communicated that God was so close, and yet on the other hand, you could not approach him. You cannot approach him because he is distant and he is unapproachable, and you are cut off from him. Everything about the tabernacle communicated that the way to God is closed, and you cannot come in. So for example, you could not even enter the courtyard. You couldn't go through those gates. You couldn't even enter the courtyard unless you were a member of the nation of Israel. If you were a foreigner, then forget it. You can't come in. But even if you were Jewish, you would never be allowed to go into the tabernacle unless you were a priest. And you couldn't just choose to become a priest, right? You couldn't just like choose it as a vocation in your life. You're going to study and become a priest. No, you had to be born into it. And if you run the numbers, you realize that it was a less than 5% of the people who would ever even have the opportunity or the possibility of ever entering into the tabernacle. And even if you were a priest and you did get to enter into the tabernacle, chances are you would never get to go beyond that first section, the holy place. You would never in your life ever get to enter through that second curtain into the most holy place because that was only for one priest, only on one day every year, the high priest when he would go in there to make the sacrifice for sin and put the blood of the sin offering onto the mercy seat. And even when the high priest did that, understand this, before he could atone for the sins of the nation, he had to make sure his own sins were covered because otherwise, if he were to go in there and any uncleanness was found in him, he would die. He would be struck dead on the spot as he stood there before the throne of God in the Holy of Holies. And so what they did is, they, they actually started to say, wow, well, you know, this could be a problem. So what they did is they started tying a string of bells around the waist of the high priest when he would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And that way they could hear, you know, the jingle jangle outside and they could say, okay, I guess he's still alive. He's still moving around. And then they would tie a rope around his ankle and have that rope lead 
you know, back into that first section, and they would say, you know, because if he drops dead, that way they can just pull him out without having to go in for him. Because you can imagine what kind of terrible domino effect this would be, right? Like if he dies in there, and then you're like, well, we got to go get him. So you go in there, and then you die, and then a bunch of more people, and the bodies are just piling up on top of each other. It would be a huge mess, right? So even for the high priest, understand this. Going into the Holy of Holies wasn't a fun thing. It wasn't liberating and free and enjoyable. No, it was full of terror and fear. Just imagine being the high priest going into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around your ankle because there's a good chance that you might die. Right? And so you can just imagine, wouldn't your knees be knocking? Wouldn't your hands be shaking as you would go in there to say those prayers and to sprinkle that blood? You would just be hoping that you were going to get out of there alive. And there's no guarantee that you actually would. So no matter how much you did, you could never be sure. Not even the high priest could ever be sure that he had done enough to make himself right with God. So as much as the tabernacle communicated that God wants to be near to us and dwell among us, it also communicated that there's a massive and impassable wall of separation that exists between you and God. See, Isaiah chapter 59, it says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save you, and his ear is not so dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. See, that's one of the things that this whole religious system communicated, and it's actually very important for us to understand. The reason why our consciences bother us is because we know deep down inside that we've fallen short. And because we've fallen short, we're not fit and so what's the answer? What's the solution? How do we deal with this conscience problem that we have? Now, the, the solution, according to many people today, is that, well, you should just do whatever you want and not feel bad about it, right? Like, just get over it. Like, don't feel guilty. Uh, you should not feel bad about it. So the author, Franz Kafka, this is what he said. He said, this is what characterizes our modern age. We feel sinful, but we don't feel guilty. We feel sinful, but we don't feel guilty. Now, here's what he means by that. We know the things we are doing are wrong, but we've convinced ourselves that we don't have to feel bad about it anymore. And, and isn't that true, right? We say, well, I might be doing something wrong, but I don't need to feel bad about it anymore. I don't need to feel guilty. And yet, here's the thing. We live in a very weird and confusing time. Because on the one hand, you have people saying this, do whatever you want and don't feel guilty about it. Don't let anyone make you ever feel guilty about anything you do. Just do whatever you want and you make your own rules. You decide what's right and wrong for you. But on the other hand, here's the thing I'd, I'd point out. There is more guilt in our culture today than there has ever been, maybe in, in ever in history, because now... Everybody wants to make you feel guilty about things that you didn't even know you were supposed to feel guilty about, right? Like, there, there's so many people telling you that you should feel guilty about all kinds of things more than ever before. There's someone out there who will make you want to feel guilty about everything, right? Like, for example, do you drive a car? Because you should feel guilty about that because you're hurting the environment. And, and if you drive an electric car, don't start feeling good about yourself. Because electric cars, you should feel guilty about that too. Because those also hurt the environment just in a different way. I saw a documentary on Netflix just this weekend. And it was about how the entire food industry is actually killing the environment and exploiting people. So if you eat food, you should feel guilty about that too. And if you water your lawn... What kind of monster are you? You're watering your lawn. Not only that, I hope you don't wash your car because that is terrible. You're using soap, you're using water. It's just a huge waste. If you wash your clothes, what are you doing? You're killing everything. If you flush the toilet, those are valuable resources. You're just flushing down the toilet, right? Every time you do anything, 
you should feel guilty about it. In other words, your very existence is hurting the environment and a detriment to other people. And if you really want to be a generous, kind, thoughtful person, then maybe you should just not exist anymore. Like maybe you should just end it all. Your electronics, I hope you don't have any of those because do you know where those were made? Like how about your clothes? Like unless you grew the cotton and harvested the materials and made them yourself without using any water and without using a machine, then you should feel totally guilty about it. And if you have a lot of money, you should feel guilty about that. If you have any money, like if you have a dollar or any money, you should feel guilty about it. And if your ancestor did something that was bad, you should feel guilty about that too. And there are countless other things that people want you to feel guilty about that you didn't even know that you were supposed to feel guilty about. And you know what? Here's the thing. I'm not here to tell you that those people are wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're all completely right. But, but here's, here's all I want to talk about. There's more guilt in our culture today than there has ever been before. But what are we going to do about it? What are you going to do with all that guilt? That's the question that I want to talk about. See, there's this catchphrase we use today, that you should be a conscious consumer. Do you catch the word in there? Conscious. Guess what that's related to? Conscience. Don't you see what it all comes back to? We want desperately to feel good about ourselves, and we don't. We want to have a clear conscience, and yet we struggle with a sense of guilt. And one way that people try to escape that sense of guilt is uh, by what we call blame shifting. So blame shifting is where you pass the blame for your own guilt onto someone else. And again, I'm not here to tell you that that's always uh, not legitimate. I'm here to say, maybe that's right. Something along the line is somebody's fault. And you know, maybe you might say, well, hey, you know, I might have done some things that weren't good at some point in my life. But it's not my fault. It's because of what happened to me. It's because of my environment. Either way, even if you're passing the blame, the point is that blame exists. And I just want you to see that, that guilt exists in the world and we know it and we're trying to pass it around. We're trying to get rid of it. We're trying to help our consciences feel better because our consciences bother us. And we're all looking for a solution to this problem. And what the Old Testament tabernacle and the Jewish religious system pointed to was something that's very important in this regard. It said that the fundamental problem that we have is us. Do you know that? You know, you know what my fundamental problem is? It's me. You know what your fundamental problem is? It's you. See, that, that's what the Old Testament, this whole system, here's what it pointed to. The problem is us. We have missed the mark. We have fallen short, and we know it. And we know that there's a God in heaven to whom we are accountable. I read something interesting the other day. It was a dialogue from a novel. So in this novel, here's what's happening. There's a dialogue going on between a psychologist named Max and his patient whose name is Tom. So Tom has come to the psychologist and he wants to talk to him because Tom recently had an affair. He cheated on his wife. And, but here's the thing. Here's what's bothering Tom. What's bothering him is that he doesn't feel guilty about it. He did this thing, but he doesn't feel bad about it. And that's bothering him that he doesn't feel bad about it. He feels guilty for not feeling guilty. And the psychologist says to him, so if you don't feel guilty about what you did, then what is it that's worrying you? And Tom says, that's exactly what's worrying me, that I don't feel guilty. And the psychologist says, well, why would that worry you? And Tom says this. Now check this out. He says, because if you don't feel guilty, it means that you don't have life in you. It means that you've lost touch with that which transcends you. See, Tom is right. See, the problem isn't guilt itself. The reason we feel guilt is because there's a God to whom we are accountable. 
And, and it means, and, and guilt is actually points to the fact that our lives actually do have meaning. So I want you to see that. Guilt actually points to the fact that our lives have meaning. That, that we were actually created for a purpose, which is more than just living for ourselves and doing whatever makes us feel good in the moment. And so the question then becomes, how do we sleep well at night? And that's the last point that we'll touch on today. Notice what it says in verse 9. These things are symbolic for the present age. And according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices and offerings were made, check this out, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 10, these only deal with outward things, food, drink, various washings of the flesh that were imposed until the time of reformation. So that word symbolic in verse 9, in the original Greek text, it's the word parabole, which is the word from which we get our word parable. So parable was a, a lesson, right? Something that was used to teach you something, a vivid lesson. So what that means is that the tabernacle and all these sacrifices and rituals, they were symbols, they were pictures, they were analogies, parables you could say, of what was to come. This whole system had a very important message, but it couldn't lead people into God's presence. It even symbolized that itself, that the way is closed, it couldn't cleanse you fully. That's why you couldn't enter into God's presence, because it couldn't fully cleanse you. But now understand, that is what Jesus has come. That is what Jesus has done for us, having come for us. Jesus, in other words, is the reality to which the priests and all the sacrifices pointed to. Look at what it says in verse 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so here's, here's what this is saying. Just as the sacrifice back in the day was made outside the tabernacle, and then the blood was brought into the tabernacle by the high priest, what this is saying is that for centuries, the Jewish people went through this ritual, but it was actually a picture of what Jesus was going to come and do one day when he would come to earth and he would give his life as a substitutionary sacrifice here on earth to atone for our sins. And then he would come before his father to present his own shed blood and he would say, here it is, it is finished the sacrifice is made. The work of atonement is complete. And here's what happened in that moment. It says in Matthew chapter 27 that as Jesus hung on the cross, when he breathed his final breath, when he died, it says the veil of the temple, that four-inch thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, it was ripped in two from top to bottom. Now, I don't know how many of you are able to rip a phone book in half. Probably not many of us, unless you do that thing where you cheat, you know, and you open it up halfway and you tear it along the spine. Even I can do that. But talking about ripping it down the middle, how many of you can do that? Well, just imagine, this would be even harder to do than that because this isn't made of paper. This is something much thicker and much uh, sturdier. So my point is this. That curtain, as thick as your hand, it was ripped in two from top to bottom. This was an act of God. 
This was God's way of saying, the wall of separation has now been removed. The way into my presence is now open. Come on in, anyone who will, because the things which formerly stood as a barrier between you and me have been taken away by Jesus. He took them all upon himself. He paid the price for them once and for all, and there's nothing else that remains to be done. That's why it says in verse 14 that it's the blood of Jesus alone which can cleanse our consciences. And here's why. Because he took your guilt and your shame once and for all. He paid the price for them so that you can sleep well at night knowing that in him your sins are forgiven, that you are completely justified before God, and that in him when God looks at you, he delights in you. He is well pleased with you. There's no tension. There's no fear. Because of what Jesus did for you, you can be right with God. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews says. He says it in the next chapter. He says this, therefore brothers, since we have such confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is saying the way to God is opened up in him. You can come to God through Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I am the gate for the sheep. They enter in through me. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Jesus, you can have full assurance. You can have a clean conscience, knowing that he has taken away your guilt, he has paid the price, and he has cleansed you and made you right with God. But here's the thing. He actually went one step further than that. See, because of what Jesus did, not only did God tear down that wall of separation, he even went one step further. When you put your faith in Jesus, he puts his spirit inside of you, and he indwells you. Now, how incredible is that? I mean, think about this. You who were once cut off, and separated from God. Not only does he welcome you in and make you acceptable, but he says, you know what? I'm going to go beyond that. I'm not only going to welcome you in, but I'm going to come inside of your life. I'm going to dwell inside of you. And, and he says, I'm going to do this as a promise to you, that I am going to see you through, that I'm not going to do this thing halfway. I am going to see you through and make sure that you make it all the way to the end of this journey. I'm going to see you through. So in conclusion, let me just wrap it up like this. How do we deal with our guilty conscience? How do we get to the point so that we can sleep well at night? The answer is this, only by turning to Jesus, only by embracing by faith what he did for you on the cross. And so I urge you today, turn to Jesus. Receive the free gift that he purchased for you at infinite price, that gift of forgiveness and cleansing, because he took your guilt upon himself. And because of that, you don't have to live in shame anymore. You can sleep well at night knowing that when God looks at you, he says, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. See, even in Judaism, not even the high priest could ever be 100% sure that he was right with God. But in Jesus, because of what he did for you, you can have full assurance of faith. You can have full confidence knowing that everything you've ever done has been paid for. It's finished. And because of that, you can rest deep down in the depth of your soul. You see, between God and every human person, there is a wall of separation higher than you can imagine. There is a chasm that is impassable. It's like deeper than the Grand Canyon. But the good news of the gospel is that God loves you so much that he himself came, and at infinite cost to himself, he made a door through that wall. He made a bridge over that chasm, and that door and that bridge has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. And because of what he did for you through his death on the cross, you can be forgiven, you can be cleansed, you can be accepted, you can be 
brought near to God. And even more than that, if that weren't enough, God goes one step further and he says, I will make my dwelling inside of you. He will come into your life. He will work in you to redeem you and transform you from the inside out. So what's your part in this? Your part is simply to say yes. Yes, God, I thank you for what you've done. I receive it. I ask you to come into my life, cleanse me, redeem me, dwell within me, and use me for your purposes and for your glory. And so today, in conclusion, whether it's for the first time or the 500th time, I urge you to receive his grace towards you and let him do that work in your life. Amen? And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this redeeming work that you do. We thank you for this cleansing work that you have done. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that we don't fix our eyes on ourselves and look at what we've done. But Lord, we take our eyes off ourselves and we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, and what you have done for us. May we do that as we go from this place today. May that characterize our week, looking to you, Jesus, and having full assurance of faith, delighting in the fact that not only have you called us in, but in you, Lord, your spirit dwells within us. I pray for anyone here today who says, you know what, I don't, I don't know if that's me. I don't know if I have received that. I want to. So Lord, Lord I pray for anyone here today who that would be them. And Lord, I pray that they wouldn't leave here today without praying that prayer and saying, Lord, yes, come into my life. Forgive me, cleanse me, indwell me, and use me for your purposes. Lord, today we receive the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.